Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. What's it about? When does it arise? What are its characteristics? It's interesting. It's interesting. And that's one of the wonderful things that I love about uh, mindfulness practice, especially insight mindfulness practice, is that um, absolutely anything, any, any object of meditation, anything that arises in our experience, in our mind, um, is interesting if you're mindful about it. And if we don't get attached to it, if we're not either you know, pushing away whatever comes up in our experience or, or um, wanting more of it. So that's true for pretty much everything in our experience. It can be interesting. There's, if, you're, if you're being mindful, there's no reason to be bored. Chances are you won't be. Whatever comes up is interesting. I reflect sometimes that that's, um, especially with beginners, that's one of the things that's hard about meditation. Hard about getting started with meditation is we sit down, we close our eyes, and we think tranquility is going to happen, and it doesn't happen. We're, 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 we meet this monkey mind, this busy mind, that's full of stuff that we don't want to be reflecting on, right? Uh, fears often, or regrets about the past, or worries about the future. And a good many of those worries about the future, for me, are fear. What happens if? So I'm reminded of a classic fear of most kids, that there's uh, a monster in the closet, or a monster underneath the bed. Um, and our parents advised us to, you know, simply look underneath the bed, you'll see there's no monster, but kids know better, you know, <laughs> looking underneath the bed if there's a monster there. It's not a safe thing to do. But the Buddha basically advised the same thing. He says, turn towards your fear, turn towards your experience, whatever it is that's difficult in your experience, particularly when you're facing dukkha, something that's unsatisfactory, oftentimes fear. The way to cope with it is to face it. So, <clears throat> amongst my uh, reflections, uh, thinking about fear lately, and it might very well be a theme for me all year, uh, at at today I'm only really sp speaking about my own experience. I don't, I don't have the, the definitive Buddha Dharma uh, answer to fear. Uh, I'm not that much of a scholar and I haven't got there yet, but I think I'll be exploring it. But today I'm just pretty much talking about my own experience. But there is, uh, there are a couple of uh, 
famous stories from Buddhism that um, uh, resonate with me around this topic. And one is the story of the heavenly messengers, which I think most of you have probably heard. Um, but a greatly um, abbreviated version is that the, the Buddha was, uh, was a very privileged guy. He was raised as a prince from a very important family, and his father... Um, who had been told that there was a prophecy that the Buddha would either be a great king or a great spiritual leader. Um, his Buddha, his father, the Buddha's father, uh, Siddhartha's father, wanted him to be a great king, like the father was. And so he protected him, uh, essentially from spirituality, but he also protected him from uh, the unpleasantness of life. He wanted to make sure that, that Siddhartha, young Siddhartha, had... Um, every distraction that he could possibly ever want um, so that he wouldn't uh, be drawn to uh, addressing these spiritual questions. And uh, as the Buddha matured and became a young man, he, uh, of course, got curious and got um, one of his servants, I believe his charioteer, one of his servants, to sneak him out of the palace. The legend goes, whether this is true or not, um, the legend goes that the Buddha had been so protected and so privileged that he had never seen an ill person, an old person, or a dead body. So um, he snuck out of the the palace with his charioteer and um, he saw a a sick person on the street and had no idea what that was and asked the servant, you know, what's that? And the servant said, that's a, that's a sick person. People get sick. And likewise, he saw an old person, elderly person, and had to be uh, informed as to old age. And he saw a body. People die. So you can imagine, uh, if he'd never been exposed to these things, uh, what his response might be. Imagine if we had never been exposed to old age illness and death and suddenly are told that, yeah, you're going to get sick, you're going to get old, and you're going to die. The response would be fear. At least for me, I'd be terrified. So um, after hearing this story for many years, um, various interpretations of it, uh, right now what speaks to me about the story is the, the fear element. The reason they're called the heavenly messengers is because the fourth heavenly messenger that the Buddha met was a monk, was a spiritual person. And he saw that somebody was um, dealing with uh, these issues of old age, illness, and death, uh, perhaps in a skillful and productive way, that there might be an answer to this, uh, this distress of life in a human body. So this is what set the Buddha on the spiritual path. You could say, it's my interpretation, you could say it was fear. And a desire to um, find the answers to what it is to be a human being and how to find peace amidst suffering, which is universal. Old age, illness, and death cannot be avoided. It's often said in Buddhism, and I I love this line, I don't think it's a line from the Buddha, but um, it's a great distillation of um, our practice and our tradition is, 
that pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Pain is inevitable. Old age, illness, and death are inevitable, but suffering is optional. And pain or and fear is part of that suffering. Fear is optional. We can't always avoid the objects of fear, but we can avoid the suffering that comes with it. So it helps to um, distinguish between the objects of fear and fear itself. Uh, for those of you that are meditators, you know that, that when you meditate, there's many different objects of meditation. Sounds come and go, thoughts come and go, feelings, memories, bodily cessations come and go. They're all conditioned. They're all temporary. They come and go. Uh, but they're objects of meditation. And likewise, there's uh, when we're living in a mind state of fear, there are objects of fear, that which is we are afraid of. But fear can also become a habit of mind with changing objects. It seems to me, at least in my experience, that fear often arises from uh, resisting impermanence. Impermanence is one of the three characteristics of existence, as the Buddha taught. Um, and we have a, seem to have an innate human resistance to um, giving ourselves over to experience. We resist it, or we want to control our experience. Or more accurately, the ego and I won't say my ego, just the ego, um, resists anything that it can't control. So I think that's a lot of where, um, in my experience, a lot of where fear comes from. But impermanence is uh, the nature of things. It's the way things are. It's the nature of reality. So in resisting that, we're resisting nature. We often resist um, impermanence by either attaching to what we want to stay, to remain, to not change, or pushing away, rushing along, whatever we want to, what we do want to change. We don't want to lose those things that we most value in life, those things that we're attached to, including our health, our youth, our mortality. our job, our relationships, our home. So that attachment to, um, to the things we don't want to lose, that attachment is the second noble truth. That's the cause of suffering, is attachment, is clinging to what we don't want to change. The Buddha said, there is no fear for one whose mind is not filled with attachments. Fairly simple formula. No fear for one whose mind is not filled with attachments. In uh, monasteries, uh, particularly in the Theravada tradition, uh, the monks and nuns every every day, every single day, um, have a chant that they do. In Pali, the first line is going to, for the music of it, it's going to give you the first line in Pali, and then I'll give you the first few lines in English. First line in Pali is Anicca Bhatta Sankara. And translation is all conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. To live in harmony with this truth 
brings the highest happiness. So, um, what this chant is inviting us to remember on a daily basis is that fear can lead to joy. Understanding the nature of our permanence and accepting it is a door to joy and freedom. So working with fear is more about accepting impermanence than rejecting that which we are afraid of. Pretty much probably the opposite of what we do in kind of reactive daily life. And as with all other forms of dukkha, the Buddha um, advised us to face our fears rather than to turn away from them. Ajahn Chah, who's a great meditation center, of the, uh, uh, teacher of the um, mid-20th century, uh, Thai teacher, Ajahn Chah said, there are two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that you run away from, which follows you everywhere, and the suffering that you face directly, and in doing so, become free. So, if we don't, Look under the bed, the monster. That monster's probably going to be there all night. If we're able to face the monster directly, realize there's nothing there. Most of our fear lives in our imagination. Just notice your experience of fear when it arises. Most of it lives in our imagination. It doesn't mean that fear is not real. Fear does happen in the in the present moment. We feel it. We feel maybe a contraction or a anxiety or a heating up of the body. But the objects of fear are very often in the past or the future. Something that doesn't exist in the current moment. Fear very often is about anticipation. So I would suggest that whenever what we most fear happens about the future, if and when that happens, we'll be able to deal with it in that present moment. We don't have to worry about it too much now. I don't know how I'm going to die, when I'm going to die, but I'm going to have no choice about dealing with that when it comes up, when it happens. The other aspect of worrying about what's going to happen in the future is that it may be something else altogether. The Buddha said, um, whatever you imagine, it will always be other than that. <laughs> whatever you imagine about the future, it will always be other than that. So don't bother. The Dalai Lama said, you may have heard this, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, answered, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recu recuperate his health. <laughs> then he is so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he was never going to die. And then he dies, never having really lived. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, about 25 years ago, I uh, volunteered at the Zen Hospice Project. And uh, one of the things I did for them is I um, ran a, uh, hosted a sitting group for uh, not only people in the, the, that were in the hospice, were people that were active, actively dying, but for anybody with life-threatening illnesses. Uh, that was kind of the theme of the, of the city group. We met once a week at the hospice. And actually, most people came from outside, but everybody had different problems. Um, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic, so that was probably a large proportion of the group. Uh, we also had people with um, cancer and Parkinson's and um, other issues they were dealing with. And uh, one of the questions that we put forward <clears throat> as a group and often explored was based on our, on our present moment experience, just sitting as we all did this morning, using our five senses, our six senses including our, our mind sense, but basically just using our science senses only in the present moment, we would ask the question after a sit, what exactly is wrong? What precisely is wrong in this moment? And here we'd have a room full of sick people and sometimes dying people, and more often than not, there was no problem. No problem in that moment, using just our senses. The only time the problems arose is when we started thinking about our problems. Well, I have this disease, or I'm worried about, or I'm dying. These are thoughts, not direct experience. Or another way of asking that question is, what's the problem? And any one of us in this moment could do that. What's the problem right in this moment? If you're a meditator, uh, you might recognize that, well, let's say if you're not a meditator, um, you might start describing the things that worry you about in your life, the objects of, uh, of, of your worry or of your fear. If you're a meditator, the problem is, uh, I'm thinking too much. Or anxiety has arisen. That's the problem. You're more, more interested in uh, the mind state than the object of the mind state. So again, I invite you to notice the difference between fear and objects of fear. Objects of fear come and go. Fear comes and goes, but they're not the same thing. One of the places, um, without having studied up on fear and Buddha Dharma, but one of the places that I know the Buddha talked about fear was in his teachings about metta, loving kindness. And it's another famous Buddha story that you might have heard, that when he first um, created a monastic community, he invited the monks to go out into the forest. He said, go find a nice tree, and sit underneath it, and, um, and meditate. They did that, scattered out into the woods, and um, very soon um, the monks started coming back to the Buddha, and saying that well, they were scared. There were lions and cobras and, and, uh, and demons out of those forests, and they weren't comfortable sitting out all by themselves underneath the tree. 
in response to that, the Buddha gave his, um, to the best of my knowledge, his first teachings on metta, on loving kindness. Another uh, translation of metta is uh, unconditional friendliness or goodwill. So the Buddha was saying if you have goodwill towards the creatures of this world, whether they're angels or demons, critters or creatures, um, if you have goodwill, uh, you'll be okay. And the monks went back, practiced metta, and found that to be true. So you could say that the antidote to fear is love or goodwill. Or an antidote to fear. So I'm tremendously grateful for my uh, meditation practice. Uh, I'm grateful for my Dharma, Dharma practice too, the reading and the study that I've done over the years, but I'm most grateful for my um, learning how to work with my mind and my heart with direct experience. It's one of the things that protects me from fear. Um, most of you probably know, some of you might not, that um, I'm living with AIDS and have been for 30 years. 30 years ago, more a little more than 30 years ago, when I was diagnosed, I was told that I'd only had about six months to live, that I wasn't going to live the year. And with that information, I quit my job and um, sold my house and moved to San Francisco because uh, at that time, the very early days of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, um, basically uh, the only competent medical com communities were either in New York City or San Francisco and they were a little bit more cutting edge in San Francisco. So one part of me wanted to um, be amongst other people with AIDS and help with whatever needed help, um, including starting up some of the nonprofit organizations that started in this city. Another part of me felt like I was coming to the elephant's burial ground. I was going to go die where, where, the, um, where you go to die when you have AIDS. Well, it didn't happen right away, um, despite the, my diagnosis. So I sat by the bedsides of um, literally dozens of friends, as I think some of you also did have that same experience in the 80s and early 90s. I watched a lot of people die. I lost my first partner, I think 91. And I lost a second partner 10 years after that. So. In that period of time, because I moved here because of AIDS, most of my friends had AIDS or were working in, the, um, in that community. Um, in a very short amount of time, I lost, lost all my friends and eventually two partners. I always thought I would be next. I still do when somebody dies. So I'm familiar with fear. Fear of death, fear of not being able to take care of myself, fear of illness has been a recurring theme for me for 30 years. So it's um, 
greatly comforting to me to not be personalizing it now. Uh, I'm not living as nearly as much fear. I have a good deal more um, equanimity about my life uh, than I did even 10 years ago, certainly a good deal more than 20 years ago. And I thank my practice for that. But for the longest time, fear and, and um, grief, grief for my losses, the losses of those or others were little demons on each shoulder. Shogyam Trungpa Rinpoche said, the quality of sadness is precisely the heart of spiritual warriorship. He wrote a book about spiritual warriors. He said, it starts with sadness. So one of the things that's allowed me to let go of some of my attachment to fear and grief is um, seeing them as conditioned phenomena, simply phenomena that arise and pass in, the, in my direct experience, just like a sound, just like a thought, just like a memory. Rises and passes, has no substance, and it doesn't belong to me. It's conditioned. But left unchecked, if we don't see that in our experience, fear can become a habit of mind. To say, for anybody, to say, I am a fearful person, is not true. Fear is, is a phenomenon, conditioned phenomenon that arises and passes. It's not yours. It doesn't define you. It doesn't define me. I'm not a fearful person. I'm a person for whom fear sometimes comes up. Doesn't last long. Like everything else, fear is impermanent. So when I say that for many years, fear and grief were my little personal demons on my shoulder, uh, Buddha had a name for that demon. It was Mara. Uh, Mara was um, the voice of doubt. Um, and the Buddha actually spoke to Mara. Um, in, in many of the Buddhist legends, Mara was a real thing, a real demon that, Buddha, that, that visited the, the Buddha and challenged him and questioned him and gave him a hard time, right up to the very end. Mara was with Buddha. But the Buddha recognized that if he um, acknowledged Mara, if he invited him in for a cup of tea, his power depleted, his power went away. So that's the invitation, when you're Mara, whatever it may be, it might not be fear or grief for you, it might be something else. Um, Whatever your demons are, invite them in for a cup of tea. Leave the door open. They're temporary. They'll go away. Mara, or Buddha said when Mara appeared, Mara, I see you. This is a number of times in the suttas. The Buddha says, Mara, I see you. So sometimes it's simply enough to name demons. Fear, I see you. To let go. So, um, for me, as I referred to, um, what's really helped is simply daily meditation practice. Not wrapping my mind intellectually around this concept of, of fear or 
figuring out how to get rid of it. But simply sitting in quiet meditation as we did this morning and noticing the arising and passing of phenomena. That's been my great teacher over and over again, a thousand times. This is what rewires our heart and our mind. That's, this is what changes our neuron, neuron pathways, is simply doing it, doing the practice. Freedom, even momentary freedom, slight moment of freedom, from the grip of fear is freedom from suffering. What the Buddha promised. Many people believe that freedom from suffering is the ultimate enlightenment, not accessible to themselves. But for me, it's simply a moment of waking up. Many of you may have had a moment of freedom in your meditation this morning. If you noticed what was going on, perhaps you noticed that you were caught up in, in thought. And because you were being mindful in meditation, at some point you noticed that you were caught up in thought <coughs> or a story, and you stopped. And you brought your attention back to your breath, your body, and you started your meditation all over again. That moment when you notice that you've been caught up in a story or a dialogue in your head, um, and you stop, that's a moment of freedom. We can have many, many moments of, um, of freedom or liberation <coughs> before the ultimate one. I don't even worry about the ultimate one. I just appreciate all the small moments of freedom that my practice offers me. It's my refuge. The more we practice, the more neural pathways we carve, the easier it gets. So I can say, after telling you my sad story, that um, I'm pretty happy now. I'm as happy as I've been probably in 30 years. I'm contented. Life is good, just as it is. I still have AIDS. I might get sick next week. I have no idea how long my time in this life is, but um, I'm not too worried about it. So you don't have to feel badly for me. I wouldn't have it any other way. Mahakosananda said, if we cannot be happy in spite of our difficulties, what is the good of spiritual practice? If we cannot be happy in spite of our difficulties, what is the good of spiritual practice? So, that's my story so far, working with fear. It might not be identical or anywhere close to your story, but I know you've got a story too. You've got your fears and worries and preoccupations and mental habits. You have your own Mara whispering in your ear. We all do. That's the nature of Dukkha, the universal nature of Dukkha. But you also have the tools the tools that Buddha offered us in your own practice to free yourself from suffering. 
and you can be freed from suffering. It's my experience that it's possible. Even the first time you meditate, there can be freedom from suffering. It's a practice. The more you do it, the better you get. But don't take my word for it. In the Buddha's words, in Pali, ehipasiko, see for yourself. That's what ehipasiko means in Pali, see for yourself. And when the Buddha said that, he's not suggesting that we think about it, think about conceptually about all the stuff that I've been talking about and figuring out whether it's true or not. The Buddha's saying, sit with it. Notice your direct experience using just your senses. There's wisdom there. So I'd like to end with a quote um, that I've shared here before, I think, here before, but it's particularly pertinent to uh, this talk. And then I'm interested in the wisdom of the Sangha, what, well, what you might have to say. This quote's from Jeff Foster. You will lose everything. Your money, your power, your fame, your success, perhaps even your memories. Your looks will go. Loved ones will die. Your body will fall apart. Everything that seems permanent is impermanent and will be smashed. Experience will gradually, or not so gradually, strip away everything that it can strip away. Waking up means facing this reality with open eyes and no longer turning away. But right now, we stand on sacred and holy ground, for that which will be lost has not yet been lost. And realizing this is the key to unspeakable joy. Whoever or whatever in your life is in your life right now has not yet been taken away from you. This may sound trivial, obvious, like nothing, but really it is the key to everything, the why and how and wherefore of existence. Impermanence has already rendered everything and everyone around you so deeply holy and significant and worthy of your heartbreaking gratitude. Loss has already transfigured your life into an altar. Thank you for your kind attention. I invite uh, questions, comments, complaints, please. Thank you so much for what you said today. It's been really, really valuable for me to hear it. Early on when you were talking about fear and the objects of fear, an anecdote popped into my head that I read in a crossword puzzle that I did, a double cross stick, where some young person in the presence of Carl Jung was asking him what she could do to take the shortest route to achieve her goals. And he supposedly said without hesitating, the detour. <laughs> and what you said reminded me of that. I've never heard that particular quote, and I'm a big fan of Young, so yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. It's all detours, isn't it's it? It's all detours. <laughs> There's no direct route to anything. <laughs>
The yellow brick road. <laughs> Any thoughts, reflections, please? So thanks for the talk. Um, and I, so what, what came to my mind while you were talking about impermanence and fear was that um, it is true that like 99% of the time, whenever I face impermanence, this brings suffering to my life. But there is this 1% in which um, I actually express this unspeakable joy that you mentioned in the quote. Um, and I just feel that there's a lot of um, focus in Buddhism in this 99% of the time that we experience suffering whenever faced with impermanence. But there are these times, I even think about the sunset in this way. I, I think like the sunset is one of these things that we all agree that's, that is universally beautiful. And I, for me at least, like my experience with the sunset, it's really an experience of impermanence. It's an impermanence of the day. It's simple because like tomorrow we're gonna, we're gonna see it again. So it doesn't hurt that much. It's not, it doesn't bring that much suffering. But it's very beautiful, and and I also think about the times in which I were I was in love and I was afraid or I was facing impermanence because I was I knew that this was not going to last forever, but it was also so joyful, um, and I'm just wondering why, why why do we think why do you think we just focus so much on the on the suffering that we face with impermanence and not this unspeakable joy. Well, first of all, thank you for that beautiful reflection. That's, uh, that's pretty much my, my experience, too. Um, but I find it really useful to remember that impermanence isn't the problem. Impermanence is nature, as I said. It's the, the way things are. So we could celebrate impermanence every day, but we don't. We find, as you said, we find it a problem. But the problem is our, our, our response, our reaction, is, is you know, we don't want things to change. Um, I'm not sure I, the, the why questions uh, are above my pay grade. <laughs> the, the Buddha actually avoid, avoided why questions. He, sometimes he just refused to answer them. A lot of times there's good, somebody in the room might have a good, good answer to why. But the Buddha said, don't worry about why. He said, worry about how. Notice how often you're resistant to impermanence, and let go of that. And you might be less resistant to impermanence. So he gave tools for changing our, our methodology for, for, for facing impermanence, rather than kind of asking the why question. So I don't mean to disrespect the why question. Um, I just don't have an answer for it. But I, I, do, I do notice the difference between impermanence and my, my response to impermanence. And the, the problem is always in my response. Old age, illness, and death aren't a problem if we don't fear them, if we don't resist them. So, thank you for that. You know, I, I, I thought about that quite a bit, this whole negativity thing, and I think there are some things about us, just as we've evolved the species that are like so deeply ingrained, we, we don't really notice. But why do we sort of notice and look for experience the negative to the great extent that it seems to like take our focus? If you go back to like how we survive as a species, it was by looking for the lion behind the tree. So yeah. it's like, 
you know, this, this part of our survival thing, <coughs> just kind of like, and, and I think once we're aware of, of the fact that our mind is inclined to like do that, that awareness allows us the opportunity to like see it happen and we can begin to sort of like retrain where we focus, but that's where this where mindfulness becomes so important because that's how you do that. You become mindful. Oh, this is what's happening, and oh, what, 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 what am I going to do? Yeah, it's, precisely. It's not. It's totally not easy. But, uh, no, not easy. Kinda, I think that's kind of like how it works for a lot of people. Yeah, the, the, that's what the neurologists say. And, um, there's a wonderful book called Buddha's Brain by a, a couple of neuroscientists that is about that, about how our, our primitive, um, our reptilian brain and our, our, our deeply ingrained uh, primitive instincts are kind of ruling us. That, that, and we, we have a natural inclination towards uh, the problems. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating study. But it's optional. Michael. Um, thank you, David. <clears throat> underlying a lot of what you were saying, at least I inferred, is that um, that there are no answers. You know, that we kind of have to surrender to not knowing in some way to really investigate things. But it, it seems to me like uh, a lot of religion and maybe even the Buddhist motivation to find answers. Um, it is motivated by fear of, n of not knowing. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a way that uh, what, I, what really draws me to Dharma practice is that it is active. It's, it's not about codifying, you know, like believing these things, yeah. but actually practicing and seeing is, is this true yeah. in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's natural that we want to know that we want an answer because you know it's it's kind of scary being on this rock spinning through yeah. space and being embodied and it, you know it's, it's somewhat overwhelming so it's somewhat overwhelming <laughs> so one of the things I've noticed about Buddhists and this might be an unfair generalization is that we tend to be curious people um, and because of the way we're especially us Westerners the way we're trained is we 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 go to the why. That, you know, we look for explanations. Um, and, and as I said previously, the Buddha said, you know, look at how. You know, he, the Buddha described, didn't answer the why questions, but he described how things worked. And so that's a lot of, for most people, I think mindfulness practice is, is looking at how things work. So you, it's, it's a great place to re, for a curious mind to reside. And, and the moment we think we have the answer, we're less open to, to seeing, yeah. in a sense. Yeah. Don't, don't know yeah. mind. And then the other aspect of what you were saying that, that came up for me is that one of the things that's against the stream in, in Buddhist practice is the Buddha talked a lot about renunciation, about the answer and the practice being letting go rather than getting something. So... As you said, I think a lot of us come to spiritual practice in order to get something. You know, I, I want to get what's going to free me, what's going to what's going to unlimited suffering. But we learn eventually, hopefully through practice, that it's about letting go. Grisha, hand up. Thank you for your talk. And, um, the reminder and through your experience, like with the, um, 
there's this freedom and relief available all the time through mindfulness and it just takes a little shift the subtle shift you know like hello anger hello you know recognizing feeling and um, I think I'm less afraid of dying instantly hopefully <laughs> than I am of living in pain you know, so pain is my biggest fear both physical and emotional pain and so um, what's been happening for me lately is that I'm starting my body's just deteriorating with age like you know injuries take longer to heal I've had a wrist injury that's lasted that's been since January 7th um, and it's just still not healing. I finally got a cortisone shot. And I have a foot that's been nagging me for double that time. And I've been to the doctor, I've had an x-ray, and they say things like, oh, you know, beginnings of arthritis. You know, so here it is, the beginnings of pain, and uh, of living with pain. And, um, and but like I was listening to Tara Brock, and she talks a lot about living with pain because she has chronic illness. And she was saying, like, don't call it pain. Just call, you know, name the sensation. Burn, the sensation. And so I started doing that, and that subtle shift, you know, I start, I'm still going on long walks for exercise, and it's, my foot is in having a sensation. <laughs> but there's that subtle shift. And also, you know, many Buddhist practitioners talk about, you know, handling the heart, like just how that can bring self-compassion and healing. Um, inviting, you know, saying hello to tomorrow, like, Okay, there's this, this sucks, but yeah. let it go. And just these constant little shifts in perception. And um, I also, in a 12 step recovery, the third, st- the third step is turning your will over, blah, blah, blah. And um, I always try to, the analogy that worked for me is do you remember in the 80s, I think it started where we had these pictures, graphic images? Um, they were called magic eye books, where you stare at an image and all of a sudden the 3D thing pops out of it. And you didn't, you didn't do anything, you just kept yeah. staring at it, you kind of relaxed and just kind of let go and, and the, the image emerges from the other image. And that for me is how spirituality and um, mindfulness works. It's like nothing really major happened. There's no like shot of the all. It just, <laughs> something You're just simply happen. seeing things in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Seeing the same things in a different way. Thank you for that. This is a great practice for working with pain. And there's tools for that. <coughs> so, thank you for sharing that, Grisha. I was thinking of the example of uh, fear, I guess. Uh, I had uh, I had people come, someone come once a month for four hours to help me keep my house clean. And I had this couple from Brazil who uh, I got through and they were really uh, sweet, and they bought their kids for the first time because I think they were just getting settled and figuring what to do with the children after school. And um, got to the point where they would call me and say, "It's time for us to come over." I mean, I didn't have to schedule them in advance. They would call me when the month was up, and then um, they didn't come anymore. So I called, and there was no answer. I got the, I got the. Um, they got the message, you know, leave the message, and then called again, and uh, and nothing happened. And I started <coughs> actually started getting angry at them, but there was also this fear that this very orderly thing that was so nice it just vanished, you know. And 
in that respect, it was a little bit scary, you know, and uh, so that, I think that, you know, uh, was, was in the mix, too. So um, I finally realized, well, I, in 12 step two, and I finally just used the third step, you know, just turned it over, you know, it's not, um, there's nothing you can do about it, so you just have to stop thinking about it. And that was about two months ago, and I think, oh, I'm going to call and see if they're there yet, you know, and it's like, no, you know, that's, that's over, and you've got to accept it, and don't be anxious about it, and don't be, uh, you know, don't get out of the drama of that event and uh, find someone else to come over once a month or four hours to help you. But uh, it was that just relaxing around it and letting these, um, I don't know what the fear was that my house would never get clean again in there. Uh, <laughs> well, so it sounds like part of it is fear of not knowing. Yeah, it was the fear of not knowing. You know, feeling like a, a, something that I had come to rely on. For actually, I like to I like to meet them. I like the socialization when I came over, and the help. You know, that wasn't there. <coughs> so the support about helping me, yeah, I feared it, it was unsettling, very unsettling. Letting go is a powerful skill. Yeah. Um, you shared that, thank you, David, you shared that uh, quote, uh, quote about happiness, and um, it reminded me of um, this exchange in the musical, a funny thing happened on the way of the forum, um, between the two lovers who are, are faced with insurmountable odds about them getting, you know, being able to be together, and they're both rather Airheads, and uh, and the young the young man says, "For you and I, there can never be any happiness." And she says, "Then we must learn to be happy without it." <laughs> <laughs> and, and Wisdom from airheads. Exactly. I mean, just as I always just thought it was one of my favorite lines, but but actually, when you think about it, it's rather profound. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was um, running out of time, but uh, seems to me the paradox for me the the greatest suffering in my life has been uh, grief, and um, and yet I know it has been a refiner's fire for my essential <laughs> being, and um, it just you know all, all this emphasis on avoiding suffering when. And some of our suffering um, is uh, greatest in some ways in terms of our appreciation of who we are and what life is. Uh, it's well, it can be our teacher. Yeah. It's, you know, that which um, we, we habitually avoid the unpleasant. And when we find it, we can actually turn to it, whether it's grief or fear or whatever it is. And then it becomes our teacher. And that's part of the spiritual life. That's one of the reasons we're all here. We have time for one more. This is too rich, yes. Screw the schedule. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find that I think one of the ways of letting go is actually allowing for the longing for whatever it is that 
or resisting happening what you want or it isn't there to bring that longing to the vulnerability of the heart and just stay with it stay with it stay with it certainly at the very least being aware of it that that, that, that longing's there and that's also a wonderful door to compassion for other people to know that we all wish to be free we all wish to be free of pain and, and to not lose our loved ones and to we all want to be happy. So I, when I notice that longing in myself, I, it reminds me that that's something we all share. Universal. Thank you. Thank you for being on time. I'm on so many painkillers from my back. <laughs> I've lost my equanimity in my body. Um, Donna is um, an old poly um, Sanskrit concept, um, referring to the habit of cultivation of generosity for feeding the, feeding the monks and um, giving money to the poor, but also for um, contributing to public works, like um, digging a well in a village or a water tower or something. And this is a great public institution that we have here. And um, so... Um, all of our expenses, the entirety of our expenses are covered by what we, the meditators who gather together, um, put in. So keep that in mind. All the, the, the teachings and our rent to the San Francisco Buddhist Center, uh, the newsletter, um, our dinners, everything we do is sponsored by you guys um, when, when you contribute to the Donable. So keep that in mind. We have an angelic host of hosts today. Three people brought food. Um, <laughs> but Matt is... But I'm, I'm just surprised. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes, yes um, please. I am your host, and uh, there's tea and refreshments out on the... Uh, there, out there in the other hand. Uh, when you're done uh, with your tea cup, you can just put it in the, uh, the sink, and I'll take care of it. Uh, they're like these little packets of nuts from Trader Joe's. Um, just take some with you, okay? And um, I'll be passing around with Donna Bull. Uh, also, I don't know, I don't believe there's anybody new here today, but the uh, uh, sign-up sheet uh, to be on our mailing list. And if you want uh, uh, to receive our newsletter, you can put your email or your down on the center street. And um, um, yes, and some of us convene outside uh, the front door at 1230 and, and go to lunch together. Thank you. Your debut as a host? Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anyone here for the first time today? I don't think so. Okay. Um, let's stand and hold hands with Dr. Bishnara. David, do you feel like improvising something? Yes. Well, may we recognize the value and the power of our practice together this morning and to remember that it's. Uh, not just about us, it impacts uh, everyone we come into contact with and all beings. And so in our reflections about 
fear and freedom of fear, grief and freedom of grief. We wish for all beings to be free from fear. May all beings be free from grief, from sorrow, from ill health, and whatever other challenges they face. May all beings be happy and free from suffering. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.